I'd like you to turn to uh, Genesis chapter 18. And the story today, it usually is Abraham and Sarah. Today, the story is Sarah and Abraham, because the story is about her, not him. Genesis 18, the part we will not read is about uh, three visitors coming to Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham is just being a good host, okay? And then we pick it up at the last half of verse 8. And he, being Abraham, stood by them, the visitors, under the tree while they ate. Verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old advanced in years and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself saying after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Go back to uh, flip a few pages to the right to, to chapter 21, verse 1. It says this, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. Verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, and yet I have borne him a son in his old age? That's the story. Visitors come to Abraham, and they eat, and then they immediately ask, where is Sarah? And he says, she's in the tent. The Lord asks for Sarah because this is about Sarah, not Abraham. Abraham has already had his visit. Actually, he's had two. God came to him in Genesis chapter 12 and gave him the promise initially. The promise was, you will have a son. You will have descendants. You will have lands. And out of those descendants, sometime way in the future, there will come one son, one Messiah to save everyone. And in Genesis 15, after lots of years have gone by, Abraham is visited by God again. And this time, God wants to assure Abraham that the promise is still coming. And if you read through Genesis 15, it's kind of spooky. It's eerie. It's at night, and there's this ominous feeling, and there's smoke, and there's dead animals, and there's hovering torches, and it's real spooky. Um, And the point is that there's this big covenant thing that we should all be thankful for, and that's another sermon. But for today, our purposes today, we need to grab a hold of Abraham You're going to have a son. I'm going to assure you that the promise is real. It will happen. That was Abraham's visit. This, in Genesis 18, is Sarah's visit. It's different. It's in the day. It's not at night. 
It's in the lazy afternoon. It's not in the creepy darkness. There are three visitors, not just one. And that's encouraging. It's kind of a crowd of affirmation, right? All the things that would play into Sarah's receptivity. And she needs to be receptive because as we will see, the walls have been up for Sarah for quite some time and there's no reason for them to really come down. Ever since Abraham's visit, we can only assume that he's gone home after God has given him the promise, right? He's gone home and he said to Sarah, we're going to have a son. God said, we're going to have descendants and a land and a whole nation of people. And it's going to start with one son. Now, Ladies who are married, have you ever had your husband come home and tell you, this is going to happen? Whatever it is, doesn't matter. This is going to happen. I'm going to do this. And a week goes by. And what happens? Nothing. And then two weeks go by. And what happens? Nothing. And then a month goes by. And two months. And six months. And still nothing. And finally he says, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And there comes a point where you just say, I don't think so but I'll go along with it. Okay. That's where Sarah was. I've heard this before. You've told me over and over about this promise. I'm not sure that it's ever going to happen. That's where Sarah was. By the way, I'm 90. (laughs) When are we going to quit lying to ourselves? And so you can see why God would give Sarah a visit. Because this is the assurance that she needs. Just like Abraham needed assurance, she needs assurance and she needs to see that there's still a chance that what Abraham had been telling her was the truth, that it would happen. And so this is Sarah's visit and I want to look at three things in this visit. I want to look at what Sarah did, what God said, And thirdly, what made the difference? What Sarah did, what God said, and what made the difference? First, what Sarah did. Real quick, to the point, God shows up in this visit and he restates the promise. He says, you will have a son. And he says it to Sarah. You will have a son. And this is what Sarah did. You know the story that we just read. You can tell me what she did. What did she do? She laughed. She laughed. Now, that is an amazing thing to us as we are removed from the situation. We're just reading a story, right? But if you put yourself in that situation, it's still amazing that here the God of the universe, the creator of everything, shows up to a person. He says, this is what's going to happen. And she laughs in his face. And we we kind of back up and we say, whoa, how, how can anybody do that? How can, how can that happen? What is wrong with Sarah? I mean, and that's maybe a normal response if you're removed like we are and you're just reading. And so we need to know a little bit about Sarah. And here's the one thing that you need to know, and it's what we get when we are first introduced to Sarah and Abraham. It's in Genesis chapter 11, and there's this long list of descendants because we have to get to this guy named Abraham because he's the one that God has planned uh, his plans through, and he's the one that God chooses. And through the genealogies, we are finally introduced to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And in chapter 11, verse 30, we get one little tidbit about Sarah. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, the text says, who was barren. 
Now, stop, stop right there. Is that the way, when, when you are introduced to a person for the first time, is that the way they are normally introduced to you? With their biggest flaw, their hugest mistake, the thing that they would like to keep hidden and buried in the closet, is that what is announced to you? Hi, this is Carol, my really good friend. She has a really nasty skin rash. You should probably keep your distance until you know that you're not going to catch it. That's, it doesn't happen, right? We don't announce people that way. Why this detail? Why does the author of Genesis say right out of the gate, Sarah is barren? Well, it may help to remember what God has done and what God is doing now. If you go back to the very beginning of the book in Genesis chapter 1, you read about a world, the earth, that was formless and void. And another good word for that, a synonym, would be barren. Barren. And yet, God works through this barrenness, through the emptiness, and the result in Genesis chapter 1 is life. It's beautiful, perfect life, so much so that God repeatedly calls it good and good and good. And then the world takes a tumble, and sin comes in, and so much so that a flood comes, and then we start the world over. It's world 2.0, but there's still sin, and so God has a plan in mind that will remedy everything. And how appropriate... That he chooses to bring about this new life from a woman who is empty of life. A woman who is barren. You see, God is just doing in her what he's already done in the world. And this little detail is a reminder to us as readers that God is capable. God has got this. But Sarah is not aware of this. We can piece it together because we have this bird's eye view. Sarah doesn't know all that we know. All she knows that is in her day and time, your worth and value and your identity as a woman came from being one thing, and that was a mother, and providing children, preferably lots of children, to your husband. And so Sarah can't do this. The one thing in her culture that proves that she deserves to breathe air, she cannot produce. She is barren. And that's what probably leads her to a bad choice in Genesis 16. She she thinks, well, I got to redeem myself somehow. And so I'll give my servant girl to Abraham, my husband, and he can have a kid through her. And maybe that will make up for my lack. And so Abraham has a child through Hagar. And that turned out really well, didn't it? No, no, not really. And Sarah lets her physical barrenness lead to all sorts of other barrenness. Anybody know anything about that? In 18, by her own words, Sarah tells us very clearly the kind of barrenness that she's dealing with. Listen to to the words she uses about herself. She says, I am worn out. I am worn out. It's a self-hating word. It means I'm pathetic. I'm useless. I'm worthless. And what it means, what it tells us is that she has a barren self-image. And then she says, shall I really have this pleasure? Shall I really have this pleasure? And some translations give you the idea that what she's referring to is the pleasure of having a child. That's kind of the idea. You know, shall I really have this pleasure and rock a child and do all the things that mother, mothers do? 
Maybe if some commentators write, the ESV is a better translation, and it drops the this. And it just says, shall I really have pleasure? Now, that's quite a different thing altogether. That's what happens before the kid, right? And if that is what she means, then her barrenness extends even into her marriage. And we can only assume that routinely, over the years, Abraham has brought up the promise. He's reminded her, hey, God has told us we're going to have a kid. And eventually this becomes a sore spot for Sarah. God will give us a child. And she, she thinks every time, not through me. I can't do that. And if marriages have gone bad over ice cube trays, and I kind of know one that might have, then it's not hard to see how this marriage could sink into a coexisting arrangement. And that's not going to change. He's 100 years old. She's 90. She's barren in her marriage. And finally, we can make a strong case that because of all of the above, she's barren in her faith. After all, God has never come to her, right? She only knows of the promise because of what Abraham has told her. And it seems so impossible. Everybody knows I'm 90, right? And he still is holding on to this promise. If the promise doesn't happen, then what does that say about the one who promised it in the first place? And you can see how she might doubt. Is there really a God? Is he really here? Did he really say that? What's wrong with Sarah? She's barren. She's barren in her self-image and in her marriage and in her faith. And what did she do? She laughed at God. Her barrenness leads to her laugh. And you can understand the position that she's in now, right? Physically, she's not all she's supposed to be. She's corrupted in her self-image, and she's in an ailing marriage. She's struggling with doubt when it comes to faith. And there are some weights that are so big that even if God were right in front of us, well, we'd probably laugh at him too. And so she laughs. It's not really a laugh-laugh like somebody told a good joke. You know what kind of laugh it was. It's the kind of laugh that we would have had this summer if somebody would have said, hey, you know what? The Royals are a lock for the World Series. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Okay. It's a mocking laugh. It's a laugh with a hint of scorn, and for sure it's a hopeless laugh. You could even say, and this would be fitting, wouldn't it, that her laugh was barren. And that's what Sarah did. She laughed. So, what does God say? What does God say? It's important to note some of the phrases that God utters. He starts with this. He says, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Now, I want you to look back at your text, and you can compare later or now. It doesn't matter. And I want you to compare what Sarah really said with what God said Sarah really said. Are they the same? No. God leaves some important details out. It's the gist of what she said, but there are words missing. And the wonderful thing that God does here is that he removes some of Sarah's own words about herself. Do you remember how she told everybody? She, she told herself, I'm worn out. I'm worthless. God doesn't repeat that part. 
She refers to a marriage that's dwindled because she doesn't measure up. But, But God, the gentle shepherd, doesn't include those self-loathing details. And so the next thing Sarah does is that she denies what she says. I didn't laugh. I didn't do it. And surprisingly, God does just the opposite this time. He says, yes, you did. You laughed. And even in light of his gentle response, God wants Sarah to face squarely and head on the fact of her unbelief. God does not give her a pass. And if you will allow me, let me, let me just spend a couple of seconds on that. On one hand, when Sarah evaluates herself, there's this inner voice that describes her worth and her value and whether she's lovable or not. And she concludes on the negative side. I'm worn out. I'm worthless. I'm not in a place to deserve pleasure. Surely, I can't be what God wants me to be. And in this space, God comes in and with precise words of love, he rinses away all of the negative that she's just put there. Okay. Then on the other hand, when Sarah realizes that outwardly she made a mistake and she crossed a line that she laughed in the face of God, the creator of everything, what does she do? She is immediately fearful. That's what the, what the text says it's in verse 15. And she tries to cover up what she does by denying that she ever laughed. God is there. God is in front of her. Even if he wasn't, he would know that she laughed. But she tries to deny it. She tries to cover up. She's clearly behaved inappropriately, but she does everything she can do to make it look like she acted rightly. And this becomes the biggest mistake of her life, and she tries to cover it over. And it's in this space that God comes, and he does exactly the opposite of what he has just done. And the words are pointed and they are sharp. And he says, you did laugh, Sarah. You heard the promise and you laughed in the face of the one who gave it. God does not let Sarah off the hook. And the truth is, she doesn't believe and God is not willing to overlook it. And so what does all that mean? Well, I want to propose this, that in that little dialogue, in that little sequence, in that little exchange, is the gospel. And it's the place at which we have to jump in and join Sarah, because we are no different than she is. The things that Sarah does here, if we're honest, you and I do every day. On one hand, we have this inner voice inside of us that routinely speaks negatively. We don't often let other people hear it, but it screams to us in our head. And we are well aware of our shortcomings because of this voice. It tells us that everyone else has figured it out, but not us. It says we're incomplete, we're too short, we're too old, we're too weak, we're too dumb, you're not successful enough, you're not popular enough, you're not fun enough, you're not, you fill in the blank. You know what that voice tells you. And in the end, it says we are unlovable. And we believe it too much of the time. And it's in that space that God comes in and he says that voice is wrong. You are lovely. You are valuable. You are worth something. You are cherished and honored. In fact, so much that I died for you. And on the other hand, 
And this is amazingly ironic, is it not? On the other hand, we have this outer voice that is audible to everybody else. We use it all the time. And it says exactly the opposite. It's a defense mechanism. Even though we know that the truth is that we've crossed a line or we've said something we shouldn't have, we've gone somewhere out of bounds, this outer voice uses every word that it can think of to utter to others that we are good, that we didn't do anything wrong, and we try to convince ourselves that we are okay, that in the end it wasn't us, there was a good reason, we were justified, no blame needs to come our way, I'm fine, I did not laugh. And it's in that space that God steps in and he doesn't let us off the hook. He says, you have crossed the line, you did lie, you did cheat, you sinned, you are a sinner, you need to know that. How dare you point a finger at Sarah because you laughed at me too in your sinning unbelief. And you see what God is doing. When we listen to the voice of self-condemnation and believe the lie that we're not lovable, that's where God comes in and says you are. But in the times that we try to cover up our sins by exclaiming that they don't even exist, that's where God comes in and points them out and says, there they are. You did laugh. It's the biggest mistake of your life, and there it is. Okay, wait a minute. Which is it? Is he the gentle shepherd? Is he the loving God? Yes. Okay, so he'll let me off the hook? He'll overlook my biggest regret? No, because he's also the God of truth. And he tells it like it is. And if we laugh because we don't believe, he calls us on our unbelief. And if you're keeping track, if you're keeping score, we are stuck. We are in a place that we can't get out of. And it's a dilemma that we all face. We have a God who wants to love us, but no way that he can really love us because we're sinful to the core. And our unrighteousness won't let him have the relationship that he wants. And it's this God who provides a solution to the dilemma. The most important thing that God says in this text is this phrase, is anything too hard for the Lord? He says it to Sarah. And to Sarah, God's words are about the fulfillment of a promise, even though every possible obstacle is in its way. The promise is nonsensical. I am 90 years old. I cannot have a kid God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a question. And it's a question designed to refute and dismiss the the unbelief of Sarah. It's not a proposition. It's not an assertion. It's not a statement. It's a question because questions need answers. Can God? accomplish his promises to us, the promise that he loves us and that we are lovable, even though everything seems to indicate that it's nonsensical, that it's not possible because we have so many sins standing in the way. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And that will be a question that will resurface throughout the Bible. It is the fundamental question every human being has to answer because how it's answered determines everything else. You have two options. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Option number one, yes. Some things are too hard for God. And if you answer that way, then you may believe that God exists, but you have not yet surrendered to him. He is not 
yet your Lord. He is not yet your Savior. Second option. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. No. Nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. And if that's the answer, then then even possibilities that we never, never even considered as possibilities suddenly become options. If we are fully entrusted to God, anything can happen that he has promised. What was the answer of Sarah? How did she answer this question? Well, we don't really get one from the text. We can kind of read between the lines and figure out what she, she answered. But we do know what God promised. And what God promised is a son. A son. Now, there's one last phrase I want to spend a few seconds on. And it's one, the phrase where God says, this time next year. I will return to you this time next year and you will have a son. And I have to ask a quick question. Why next year? God can do anything, right? And he's promised a son. He's made life out of nothing. And he's promised a son. And if God can do anything and he's promised a son and a son will come, then why wait a whole year? Why not? Poof, son, there you go. He can do it, right? It's anything too hard for the Lord. But he doesn't. I love how one commentator put this. He says, the reason God said next year must have partly to do with the current state of Abraham and Sarah's relationship. It wasn't in a good place. Probably the worst thing for this situation would be to put a baby in the middle of all of the dysfunction. And so he says next year. And it gives them time to get to know one another again like it should be. And it gives them time to rebuild a marriage. And in this renewed stability, there will be a right atmosphere and a right place for a child. And the commentator says this, the gift God wants to give Abraham and Sarah is not just a new child, but a new marriage. Don't you love God a little more? Two chapters later, Genesis 21, a child comes along. They name him Isaac. Look down in the footnotes of your Bible. What does Isaac mean? Anybody? Laughter. Laughter. Now, wait a minute. The whole story we just threw, went through is about barren Sarah not believing that God could do what he had promised. And everybody knew about her unbelief because of what? Her laugh. Her laugh. The laugh becomes her biggest regret in life, her biggest failure point. If she had a card that was blue and asked the question that you have in front of you, on that blank, she would have written laughter. It was her biggest failure point in life. But the promise does come true, and they name the child laughter. The name of the son is the same thing as the worst sin she ever committed. And I have to ask why that is. Because something has changed with Sarah. Her mocking laugh, the laugh of scorn, has been turned into a laugh of joy. Verse 6 of chapter 21 says, God has made laughter for me. That's what she says. 
I am different now. By his word, God has broken the grip of death and hopelessness and barrenness, and a new story has been created. And, and when, whenever that kind of thing happens, laughter is a natural response. Anytime that some ugly threat in your life is suddenly wiped away, the response is to smile, to grin in relief. It's to laugh because what was ugly is no longer a problem. It's no longer an issue. It's gone. It's the same thing that happens over here. It's the same thing that happened just a few minutes ago. People go down into the baptistry and the old life is done away with. The old regrets, they're gone. And no one pops up out of that water with a sour face and says, oh, that blows. They don't do it, right? It's a smile. It's a grin. It's a laugh. It's a hug. It's, it's joy. Because... The thing that was going to lead to death has been dealt with. And it's been replaced with hope and joy and purpose and possibility. And Sarah is laughing for the same reasons. In fact, in verse 6, she also says, Everyone who hears will laugh with me. That's what the NIV says. Another translation says, Everyone who hears will laugh over me. But probably how it should be translated is everyone who hears will laugh at me. At me. And let's face it, okay? 91-year-old woman at the mall, breastfeeding. That's going to draw some giggles from the teenagers walking by. Everyone who hears will laugh at me. Her biggest mistake in life she's not concerned about. She's not even concerned about other people laughing or even that she was the one to laugh in the first place. And her biggest mistake in life, which was laughing in the face of God, is no longer a factor. And so, third, what made the difference? Quickly, the one difference was the son, the one child. Isaac is the son of promise. The one child that will bear the promise and carry it through his generation and pass it to another and on and on until the true Isaac appears, the Messiah who is Christ the Lord. For those of you who remember, can I give you a Paul Harvey moment? If you will turn to Luke chapter 1, sometime, it doesn't have to be now, and read verses 34 to 37. I want you to note that scene and what the angel says, because it mirrors what happens in Genesis 18. It's the Christmas story, right? And the angel comes to Mary, the virgin, and he says, you will have a son. We've referred to it earlier in the service. You will have a son. And she says, how will this be? Because I'm a virgin. And he goes through it. And at the end, he says, nothing is impossible with God. He says, by the way, your cousin Elizabeth, even though she's old, she's going to have a kid because nothing is impossible with God. And what the angel says is the answer to the question in Genesis 18. Is anything too hard for God? The angel says, no, nothing is impossible with God. Not barrenness, not virginity. God can create life from the most desolate of places. And the difference maker for Sarah is the son, Isaac, the son of laughter, the son of joy. The difference for Elizabeth 
is the Son. The difference for Mary is the true Son, the one child who was promised all along, the one child who will bring ultimate joy and ultimate laughter. And he is the difference for us, the thing that will turn our mocking, hopeless, barren laugh to one filled with joy. Jesus is the true Isaac. What did you write on the back of your card, on that blank? The gift of God today is that whatever is written there can be something productive rather than destructive. And the way that happens is that you answer the question. The question is, is anything too hard for God? Week after week in this place, we ask you to come and we ask you to say yes. Yes to a Savior. Yes to Jesus Christ. Yes to a life that is right with God because of what Jesus has done. But this week, the answer is not yes. This week, the answer is no. Is anything too hard for God? No. No. And that's what we invite you to. Not ailing marriages, not dinged self-images, not childlessness, not even my biggest regret is too hard for Jesus. Through the one child who has promised all along. Nothing is impossible. And he loves me enough that he points out my sin and he doesn't ignore it, but instead he takes it away by taking the punishment in my place, earning me a position where I am right with God. Me, me. <laughs> and you should, you should feel the same way. Me, I, I get to be right with God? <laughs> That's laughable, right? But it's true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy that you give. What appropriate, uh, an appropriate idea on the second Sunday of Advent when we talk about joy, that we are reminded once again that Jesus the Messiah is the true child of laughter. That old life of sin and death is overcome. It is done away with because of what he has done. brings a smile to our face that fills us with joy and laughter. Father, I pray that if there are some here that don't know that kind of a laugh, that you will change their scornful, mocking laugh into one of hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.